Hey there, thanks for listening. This is Reframe Your Life, and I'm your host, Sandy Reynolds. On each episode, I'll explore topics and interview guests to help you live a soul-centered life. Let's get right into this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining me for this episode. Today is a very special day at Reframe Your Life. It's the 100th episode. I feel like we should have a cake or something yummy to celebrate. When I started this podcast in April 2016 with Joanne Gibson, we wanted to create a podcast we would like to listen to. We both found the podcast for women tended to be geared at a younger audience. We weren't really interested in conversations about daycare, parenting, or juggling family and career. Of course, in the past three years, the podcast space has exploded and you can find many more podcasts available for every niche under the sun. When Joanne left last summer to return to the corporate world, I decided to continue and try to find my own way as a solo host of Reframe Your Life. I knew I wanted to shift the podcast slightly away from leadership and into a more spiritual conversation, but I really wasn't sure what that was going to look like. I thought it would take me about 10 episodes to figure it out, and I think it's taken slightly longer. Probably the best thing that I did was take two months off earlier this year to do a deep dive into where I was in my work and where I wanted to focus. I knew if I took some time away, it would give me the space to figure it out, and I think I'm finally there. I set myself a goal of getting to 100 episodes, and here we are. Thank you for being part of this journey with me. I'm going to keep going. I don't know for how long. I have to set a new goal, but I feel like I have some more episodes to go and some clarity in this conversation that I want to have with you. If this is your first episode, please go back and check out some of the previous episodes. I don't expect you to listen to all 100, but if you do, that's cool as well. But if you're like me, you'll probably just dabble a little bit and look at some of the topics that we explored that are of interest to you, and I know you'll find some things there. And if you have been listening, thank you for your feedback and your support. There are a number of you who are loyal listeners, and I often hear from you, and I thank you for your feedback. It means a lot to me. If you do listen and you have enjoyed the podcast and you haven't yet left a review on iTunes, it would be a great gift to me for this 100th episode. And if you have left a review, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. I wanted this episode to be special and I looked for a guest that I felt would bring something exciting to this conversation. I was thrilled when I was able to book Sass Petherick. Sass has a master's degree in coaching and mentoring and she did her dissertation on the experience of self-doubt. She spent 15 years leading complex and risky organizational change and then went through what I would call her own awakening. 
I'm a huge fan of her work, and I won't spend any more time introducing her to you. I know you'll want to check her website out and her Instagram out as soon as we finish listening to her, and you'll find all that information at the end of the podcast. So without further ado, I bring you Sass Pethrick. Sass, I'm really thrilled to have you on Reframe Your Life today, so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Yeah, so I found you. I don't know if I ever told you how I connected with you, but I subscribed to this uh, email from another woman in England, and uh, Susanna Conway. I don't know if you know Susanna Conway. Uh-huh. Yeah. And she there was a PDF that she put out and it was interviews with different women and you were in it. And I was going through it and I saw you and I looked you up and I did your online assessment on self-doubt. And then I immediately emailed a bunch of people I knew, a bunch of women I knew and said, you have to go and do this assessment. <laughs> In a world of online giveaways and, you know, all of those things, I thought yours was exceptional. Oh, I'm so glad. I've, I've heard a lot of stories like that of, of people saying that they had um, they discovered the, the archetype quiz and thought, oh, my goodness, this is actually really helpful. So I'm pleased it took almost a year to pull that together. So I'm glad that it's being shared widely. Yes. Well, it's really great. And I thought I totally need to connect with you on Reframe Your Life. And then I knew that I had this special episode coming up. So it's my 100th episode today. And I thought I want to get someone that really, I think, kind of embodies what I'm doing on the podcast. And when I saw your self-doubt and I thought this is just the right person to have on this episode. Well, it's kind of a um, it's kind of a special invitation for me too, like just to to be considered worthy enough of your hundredth episode. <laughs> well, you're a podcaster, so you know it's it is a pretty big milestone to hit a hundred. Sure episodes, is. So yeah, yeah, great. So I thought we could just start off talking about reframing your life, and I, you know, I've read all your your bio and listen to some podcasts with you. So I feel kind of familiar with your story, but I doubt that a lot of my listeners are. So I thought maybe if you could just tell us about a life reframing moment in your life. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the greatest uh, reframing moments for me was my very first day of of coach training. Um, At the time, I was in a corporate job that I had been in for around 15 years in quite senior leadership roles, um, but had never really felt like it was my work. Um, But I had sort of been quite good at it, so I kept getting promoted, which makes it a lot harder to leave. Um, And I had been through a process of deciding that um, this work was, if I didn't leave, was eventually probably going to lead to me burning out yet again. Um, And I needed to really make some changes. But I I didn't really have a clue where that that change was going to lead me or really what was calling me. I, I didn't really understand that I could actually, that I actually had intuition, that that was a very foreign concept to me at the time in my life 
um, it felt like a kind of delicious thing that might happen to other people, but it, I, it didn't really feel familiar to me. Mm. And as soon as I walked into this room, which I was very committed to the training itself, I thought, oh, this, this feels kind of good, but I'm not sure why, and I don't really know why I'm excited about it, but I am. And within the first hour, I thought, oh, my goodness, we're just doing what I think I've always probably done. But you mean you can do this as a job? <laughs> and it can feel like this. And I, I kind of had this really sort of almost out-of-body experience of this is what you're meant to do. Just listen, listen, soak it all up. It's, it's all coming for you. And it felt, um, it just felt like something I I felt a very full-bodied, yeah, a very embodied experience of this is what I'm supposed to do. And, I, and it felt so right to me. I didn't think I could question it. And, of course, now I, I guess I would call that my my intuition. It may even have been, you know, some some voice from beyond that was that was sort of championing me and getting me to, to take this, what at the time was quite a risk. Um, but it was very exciting to think that there was this whole other world that I could be part of. Mm, that's that's a great great story, and it it actually resonates a lot with me right now in my work. I've just written and did the previous podcast on listening to our intuition, mm. and you know when you say you said there at the beginning that you had didn't really know how to listen to your intuition or you you know you you weren't really aware or sure about that and have do you think you've grown in listening to your intuition now yes and and i think i've realized that well, the reason that i probably didn't feel that it was something that applied to me in the past was because i didn't really believe that that was a thing that could happen like I, I sort of instantly dismissed it as hokum uh, I guess and and of course now what I realize is that our intuition is a is a relationship that requires our participation so um it, it's like any relationship we kind of have to show up for it and be present for it and allow ourselves to be surprised by it and to not try and control it to kind of hold it quite lightly um, to let it lead sometimes um, mm -hmm. and and I, I've come to sort of see it as not the sort of magical force that bestows wisdom but um, but often it's sort of just the next step on the breadcrumb trail um, and it can be quite subtle and so because it often to me anyway doesn't speak to me in words it's it's very much about a, a sensation or a, or a feeling a sense of rightness um, and often it, it goes against conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. So I've learned to sort of be open to it and see where it takes me and not try to figure it out. Um, mm -hmm. I think one of the downsides of having an active mind is that I'm always trying to answer the question before I even really know what the question is. <laughs> so, so I'm just trying to always be quite patient with myself and just let things be. Um, and just trust that whatever is I'm meant to know, it, it, it will reveal itself when it, when the time's right. And that has happened too many times now for me to for me to worry about the the times when my intuition is leading me somewhere that 
is perhaps not that obvious or commonsensical at the time. Yeah, I, I really, I agree with that. And I think that it is something that you hone and you need to um, pay attention to our our inside voice or <laughs> what's going on mm. inside of us. So I appreciate that. So you started down the coaching uh, cert- certification road. And then how did you end up with really focusing your work around self-doubt? Um, I, I'd left the corporate world after about two years, I sort of went full time as a coach and um, I'd, I'd been working kind of part time and doing my training and sort of trying to figure out like where I fit, what it, what it would take to, to actually run a business, which is, um, <laughs> never what they say <laughs> and um and I had decided to um enroll in a in a graduate program in psychological coaching and um it was during that program we did, did a um quite a large portion of it was about the psychotherapeutic dimensions of coaching kind of where coaching is derived from in lots of in lots of ways and there was a um a, a school of thought, a body of work that I just completely resonated with, which is about um, adult development and how adults um, make sense of the world, that we we don't just kind of reach our full height and then we're suddenly done, that actually we do go through what, um, what some uh, psychologists believe are quite distinct stages of, of meaning-making. And I recognised myself so much in that body of work. And I also recognised that one of the reasons that I had perhaps struggled in my life and struggled with the complexity of of a job that I felt, always felt underqualified for, um, was that I was kind of doubting myself. Um, And on a couple of levels, the kind of usual... Um, the usual aspects of self-doubt, which I guess most of us are familiar with, that kind of tendency to procrastinate or to keep proving myself and to feel a bit like an imposter often. But I also had quite existential doubt about, you know, who am I and what am I here to do and what's this all about? You know, why are we even alive? And, you know, is the universe a benevolent place or is it completely indifferent to us? So was a, for me, that, that was always, that doubt was operating on a couple of different levels. And and so I, um, when I was speaking with my supervisor, um, my academic supervisor, um, I said I was really struggling to find a dissertation topic. And she said to me, well, what is it that coaching has taught you? What is it that this program has taught you? What are you learning about yourself and the world? And and I kind of sat with that for, for a little while and I realised that one of the biggest things that I was learning was how to be with ambiguity, how to actually sit in the, in the unknown and be kind of okay in that place. Um, and so she said to me, well, that's a really good dissertation topic. And when we kind of honed it down, um, it really became about this experience of self-doubt. What is that actually like? And I found that um, there had been some quite um, extensive research around um, what what um, one researcher called self-efficacy, the kind of way of feeling like you are effective in yourself um, back in the 70s. But no one had really picked up on self-doubt as a standalone experience. And so this was quite a new topic. And I, I was quite excited by that. 
So I spent most of a year kind of quite deeply immersed in in self-doubt as what I've come to know as a phenomenological experience, which really is just a fancy word for the very subjective and dynamic and complex nature of self-doubt. But it's it's often a mix of body sensations and thoughts and feelings and memories and projections and um, and we all experience it very, very differently. Um, and so that that kind of held my attention for a, for a long time. And I'm um, even though this is now five, six years later, I still see that question of, you know, what is self-doubt holding you back from is, is really a, a, a doorway into someone's experience of the world. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm continuously fascinated by where that question ends up taking us and in coaching sessions um, and podcast interviews <laughs> And in other ways of sort of um, being with people. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that you never really, well, I should ask you this. I shouldn't say what I think because you are the expert on self-doubt. <laughs> <laughs> In my experience, and I'm 60, I don't know that you ever get past self-doubt in your life. Yeah, I, that's certainly been my experience, which is which is both um, a blessing and a curse, I think, because um, one of the things that we know about self-doubt is that it is quite tied to our survival mechanism. So it's all about saying um, self-doubt kind of tells us a hundred different ways, don't do that, you might hurt yourself. So it pops up when we are doing something for the first time or when we're taking some sort of psychological risk and it tells us, to be careful, to, well, are you sure you want to do that? Do you think you can do that? And it, um, it brings in all of these ideas about what could go wrong, um, what might be at risk for us if we, if we proceed. So it's very much there to try and protect us. And, of course, if we are living a, a thoughtful, conscious life, then we're always going to be doing things that, um, that do mean we take small and large psychological risks. And so self-doubt is, is there just to make sure that we, um, we are careful and that we, um, we don't risk things like connection and uh, belonging and all these things that are quite necessary for our survival. Wow. You know what? You just reframed self-doubt for me and, because I often think that it's something that you want to overcome in your life. But the way you just said that, it makes sense to me that as I stretch myself and put myself in new situations and take risks in my business and in my life, that I will continue to experience self-doubt. Yeah, and, and your, um, your experience of you know, wanting to get over it or... Um, or as I hear a lot from people that they see self-doubt as kind of the enemy within, like this part of them that is somehow trying to stop them from making their dreams come true, from progressing the things that they really want to do. And so there is this tendency to almost feel like we have to um, go into battle, we have to combat self-doubt. And, and I think that's quite a, a kind of, that, that language of 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 war really is quite um, difficult. And, and I have found as well that the folks that experience self-doubt most acutely often have a lot to a lot of experience of needing to protect themselves, of to keep themselves safe. And so what we know about things like compassion and the, the kind of 
precondition that self-compassion provides for lots of other desirable aspects to our personalities like bravery and resilience and courage and all these things that are really necessary for us to move through self-doubt. Um, when we're in, at war with a part of ourselves, it's very difficult to access a sense of compassion, a sense of wanting to champion ourselves and to kind of almost take self-doubt by the hand and offer it some offer it some comfort and say, it's okay, I, I am going to be all right. And this is tricky, but that makes sense because it's the first time I've done something. I'm doing something that's a bit scary. But at the same time, not letting that descend into a sense of being in a battle or defeated before you've even begun. Um, and so I found that that reframing of self-doubt is an innate protector can really help us to kind of see it as almost a sort of frightened child within us. Often if folks have grown up where they didn't feel safe or they, they really needed to kind of find that resource within themselves to keep themselves safe, um, that, uh, you know, parts of us kind of get frozen at that age when those events occurred. And so self-doubt's coming back and saying, oh, that happened last time you did something that was this scary. Look what happened. It was really, it was really frightening or we weren't safe. Um, and so there is this sort of inbuilt mechanism that is setting off a sort of alarm within us to say, don't take that risk again. Um, but of course, that was often happening at a time when we were younger, sometimes less powerful um, and often without the wisdom that we have today we will never be wiser and smarter than we are right now when we look back we can kind of say oh actually let's broaden the view of what was going on during those times when I felt the most acute self-doubt and seeing that oh what was happening in my life at the time how might I have been feeling that how does um how does reflecting on it just give me a very logical explanation for why I felt I needed to keep myself safe? Mm. And then that kind of allows, I think, some, some loosening of that sense of needing to go into battle. We sort of lay down our weapons a little and think, oh, wow, I was just doing the best I could. And, and actually today what I want to do is something different. And, and so in that sense, we get to kind of heal our past selves because we can make new meaning from what was happening at the time. Wow, that's beautiful and so helpful. I, I would love to look at the model that you've developed and the 12 self-doubt archetypes because I, I've never, well, it's probably never been done before, but it was very new to me to look at self-doubt this way. When I did the assessment, I came back as um, a seeker. And right. it made so much sense to me. I, I was just such an aha that it was like, yeah, that is totally me. I, I'm always looking outside myself for validation and have a hard time making decisions, or at least that's how I understand the seeker. But yeah. why don't we look at them? And um, if that's okay, I think we have time to kind of highlight it at least. And yeah, for sure. A, bit of a taste for it. Yeah. Well, the, the reason that the, the, the kind of self-doubt archetypes even came to be was that I found after, I, I think I taught over a hundred people um, over the last couple of years in a program that I've developed, which kind of takes us through a, um, a sort of map of self-doubt in our lives and, and helps us to um, move forward with 
lots of courage and understanding and, and compassion for ourselves. Um, and after I'd sort of been teaching about 100 people, I thought, actually, there, there are these patterns that I keep seeing. Right? People who have had specific experiences seem to respond to risk with these very common um, responses to self-doubt. And I, I, it had sort of been sitting winking at me for a little while before I thought, I'm just going to properly look at this. Um, and I used a, a sort of loose, not particularly academically robust, certainly, um, but, but a, 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 an approach to, um, to that research that I just felt I wanted to have something that I could kind of hang it on. And um, so I used a, a grounded theory research approach where you don't start with any idea of what the answer is going to be. You just take a whole lot of information and, and see what that that. Um, information tells you about the specific issue um, and so the, the kind of theory um, rises from the ground is basically the, the kind of idea here mm-hmm. and I found that when I went through like comments on the discussion forum the emails that I had client notes um, all these different um, ways that I could kind of tag an idea of, of someone's response to self-doubt I started to see that there were <clears throat> at least four core areas where self-doubt seemed to show up. And one was in um, self-acceptance, like this idea of like, do, where do I belong? And am I at, where am I at risk in my belonging? Um, there was another area around boundaries, um, like what territory am I allowed to take up and where am I allowed to sort of put a fence up and say actually, this is okay for me, but this is not okay for me. Um, and there was another area around just trusting ourselves, like kind of, you know, can I make decisions? Um, how do I know what the right thing is to do? How can I begin to um, sort of trust my own wisdom, my intuition, my intellect, my instinct? And the fourth area was around um, kind of self-belief, sort of le- leading our own lives, um, a sense that, um, I have sovereignty over so much. What's the vision for that? And, and how am I supporting myself to achieve that vision? And I thought, oh, well, that's really interesting. I've got these four core areas and I wonder what that's going to tell me. And I sort of sat with it for ages. I had a, a, the whole wall in our guest bedroom was covered in post-it notes. And my husband was saying, uh, is something going to happen with all of that? Oh, what's going on? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a project. Just bear with me kind of thing. And as I started dividing um, everything into these four areas and taking up all four walls, I started to see that even within those four areas, there were um, distinctions as well. And so within each of those four um, core areas, there were then three separate distinctions each. I'm sure there's more, but what I found was I could pretty much hang my hat on these 12 separate archetypes. And what they point to is that we have these sort of patterns of how we respond to self-doubt. It's, it's like we have learned responses, learned thoughts and feelings and sensations, um, learned behaviours, what we tend to do and say to ourselves and how we kind of make sense of the world when we're experiencing self-doubt. And they kind of fit with this model of, of 12, which I kind of like because I thought well, there's, a sort of, there's a sort of symmetry in 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I started to write a little bit about what, what do they all mean? What are they, 
you know, what are they all kind of involved? And um, and once I had a sort of drafts of them, um, I found that there was sort of seven key sections within each one, and that kind of corresponded to to a question of sort of you know, you know, what what's important to you? Is this important to you or not? And and I thought I could create a sort of a way of um, quizzing people to see if they could decide where they were and, and I quite like quizzes and you know psychometric tests and things like that um, so I asked um, a couple of dozen people to test this for me and to sort of um, then I would send them like well this is your scores and I think most of us have two or three primary archetypes that kind of when you see them all three together, you kind of get a sense of, oh, yes, this is my pattern. And in different circumstances, I tend to respond to self-doubt in these ways. We all have one sort of primary, um, almost like our default pattern, our most comfortable way of responding. Um, And then there's usually a couple of supporting characters as well. Um, But the the couple of dozen people that tested the, um, the, the archetypes their responses was incredibly encouraging. Um, and I made some changes and, and tweaked things. And then I thought, oh, no, I could just, there must be some technology out there that I can create, um, that I can create this with. And so it became a sort of online quiz that people can do. Um, but I've now had um, over five or 6,000 people have downloaded it, which is, just blows my mind. Oh, it's amazing. I find that, I find that incredible. Um, but it, it has kind of led me to see that, that, you know, A, I think it's incredibly helpful to know that our responses to self-doubt are understandable and they do make sense when you think about it from this perspective of self-doubt as the protector. Um, and it's just the way that we have found to keep ourselves safe. And so we tend to res- uh, respond to self-doubt through this, through this patterning. Um, and so, so I created this this quiz and had all these people um, download it, and everyone was sharing it and saying, "Oh my gosh, I'm you know I'm the I'm the reformer, or I'm the alchemist, I'm the designer, I'm the seeker." And um, it was this lovely way of people sort of finding that they actually had a community of other people who were doing <laughs> responding to self doubt in, in exactly the same way. Um, and so, yeah, so the archetypes are kind of. Um, I, I called them archetypes because I think that really the the archetype genuinely is a kind of um, it, it's a kind of pattern. It's a and, and Jung when he talked about um, archetypes, he, he sort of believed that there were these universal mythic characters that we all could um, we all experienced during our lives, and so they're kind of like a fundamental aspect of our humanity. Um, and I thought, well, actually, you know that. I think these 12 patterns, these 12 ways that we respond to self-doubt, um, there is a kind of universality to this. It, it, um, it may show up in different ways specifically for people, but actually there is a, a sort of, um, a, I guess, a, a known way of understanding that this is just a tendency or a theme that embodies something of our experience of self-doubt. Um, so I'm I'm kind of excited about um, about what this um, tells us really, and and how people have found it really helpful just to see um, what are these emotional and behavioural and psychological patterns of how we experience and respond to self doubt, and you know what can I 
what can I actually do that to begin to navigate through self-doubt without feeling like I have to go to war with this part of myself? So that was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> and right that you kind of led into what I was thinking as you were talking, because once somebody sort of has an idea of what their main archetype or their main area where they'll um, encounter self-doubt and I like the idea of self-doubt being our way of protecting ourselves. Um, what Do you have a way then that in your coaching practice or in, in your work that you help people then to specifically address that? I do, yes. So, um, so the... When people take the quiz, they um, I send them a, a, an ebook of it's about twenty pages, I think, um, which kind of takes you through your particular archetype and how it might show up for you, what you might be experiencing, and at the end there are these experiments that you can um, just begin to play with, right, to sort of help you to see perhaps where self doubt is showing up and and what you could do to begin to um to kind of uh play with it to see where where you could try a different behavior to see um where the the sort of I, I have a tendency to say weak spots but I don't really mean that I just mean where where that um pattern is creating a challenge for you or causing you some sort of suffering um what is the way that you can begin to kind of dismantle that sense that that's the only way you can respond or that's a patterned response um so for example um the the seekers right the, the seekers that um that the group that you're a part of sandy are um have a tendency to like you like you described uh, I, I see the seekers as kind of hummingbirds because you have this um beautiful sense of um curiosity and wanting to um discover things um and when that's that tendency for curiosity is in shadow it can often lead to a feeling that everyone else has the answers for me so you're kind of flitting from from teacher to practice to um, to book to author to um, to speaker to some someone else to kind of um, offer the answer. Um, and so one of the ways to to practice um, self trust as a seeker because this this archetype sits in the um, in the the area of those four areas that I talked about earlier. The seeker sits in the um, in the the trust quarter, the sort of wisdom quarter, or the and this is really about um, uh, yeah self trust and a sense of um, trusting in your own wisdom and your own ability to make good choices. Um, and so, one of the experiments, for example, is to um, explore your relationship with making choices, like actually reflecting on that and then beginning to um, beginning to see. What happens when you just make a choice and stick to it and see how that feels to you when you're actually building evidence that you can make a choice and sometimes it's going to lead to a really positive outcome and sometimes it's going to make a, um, lead to something that you probably weren't expecting. But you start to see that there is no right choice. There is just the ones that you decide you're going to make. Um, and so, so this, um, these uh, experiments are a way of beginning to play with the, the archetypes. And then um, if people want to take that even further, um, I've developed this course called Compass, which is about 
um, accessing the four core aspects of yourself. Um, so in the, the four quarters, I think there are a kind of primary um, archetype that you get to access that can help you to um, uh, sort of counteract those those behavioural patterns, those emotional and psychological patterns. So there is the sovereign and the leadership quarter, the lover and belonging, uh, warrior and boundaries, and the sage is in the trust quarter. And so as you um, as you uh, go through the the compass program, you get to actually access your sage, your warrior, your lover, your sovereign. Um, you get to kind of um, activate that as a resource within you, um, which you can call upon. So very much like activating different aspects perhaps of your intuition, of that inner voice that, that we are all um, often wanting to have a relationship with. This gives you quite practical ways of beginning to open up to that that kind of way of communicating. Um, and people, um, I think there's been about a hundred 50 people or something like that have gone through the compass program um and it's kind of amazing to sort of see where people take it like what how they um understand what each of those core archetypes is there to teach them how they often feel that it's actually very familiar it's just not a conscious relationship that they've developed but it's usually something that they have glimpsed at in the past and when those four um, core archetypes, the, the sovereign, the lover, the warrior and the sage are all working together, you start to feel a little bit kind of invincible, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a kind of like quietly powerful mm -hmm. sort of way of being in the world because you're you're kind of operating from a place of accepting and accepting yourself and trusting yourself, believing in yourself and, and kind of knowing that you have, um, that you're worthy of your own attention, that you're worthy of your own, um, your own ability to make choices and, and um, to take action on behalf of yourself. So there's a sense of real advocacy for yourself and compassion for yourself that, that seems to come out of this, this process. So, um, yeah, it's, it's super fun to teach. We have a monthly coaching call um, and everyone gets kind of access to the whole program at once and then we take um, questions and comments and experiences are shared and things like that um, during the monthly call. So that's yeah, it's great. Fun. <clears throat> well, at the end of the call, I'll get you to share that information where people can find it and yeah, sure. with with the listeners. But I have a few more questions before we get to that point. Of uh, course. I mentioned to you that I am very interested in women and spirituality and that when I, I did this um, program, I immediately wondered how that connected with women on a spiritual level. And so, and I, I don't really even, like, I don't have the answer here, and I don't know if you do, but I think the intuition is part of it. When you mentioned that, I, I realized that one of the places where I find women um, struggle is um, in listening to their intuition, which to me is definitely a spiritual kind of voice inside of us. So I just thought, let's just riff on this a little bit and yeah. thought about that anymore or since I first mentioned it to you. But I like, you know, Brene Brown's kind of definition of spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us. And that our connection to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. So 
with that kind of a definition, I'm wondering how self-doubt might impact us from connecting to each other or to a power greater than all of us, which ultimately to me impacts how we show up in the world in love and compassion. Mm, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think there are, there is, um, I, I guess I, I grow, I've grown up in New Zealand in a very secular household where we kind of um, worshipped at the idea of getting any education. <laughs> there wasn't, there wasn't a, a particular spiritual tradition in, um, in my family. And now I live in the UK where my parents were originally from. Um, and uh, England has a very secular um, approach to the world. Like there is a, a kind of very healthy respect for, um, for evidence-based science. And that is um, something that I have had to kind of hold lightly because I have my own, um, my own beliefs, my own um, faith, and yet I believe wholeheartedly in um, an evidence-based scientific approach to, to, to the world. Um, and I do think that those things are inextricably linked, however paradoxical they may seem. Um, but I have found that within a kind of relationship to my self-doubt, part of that has been about accepting that I am allowed to have my own beliefs about my faith, about my life, about the world, um, that there is a, a I think, um, one of the aspects of self-doubt is that we have a tendency, I think, to abdicate responsibility for how powerful we actually are as individuals. Um, that we we kind of grow up in this um, environment where we're, t- we're kind of told what to do. We have school bells and we have office policies and you have to fill in a form to do anything. There is a kind of abdication of, of leadership to um, uh, people in power and often that is men in power um, across across all communities and societies, except I think Denmark. You know, men still dominate every aspect of of um, leadership roles. And so, as women, where does that leave us? Does that mean that we go through our our lives um, letting other people, other and and other humans that do not have our experience as men? Um, do we do we decide that they get to make all the choices, or do we decide that actually there's something that women have to say, that women of colour, that people with disabilities, that people from a different sexual orientation or a gender orientation um, have have to say? And I think this for me feels like part of a, a sort of wider mission where I believe that when we can kind of individually start to question all of the ways that we have been told we must be in the world, when that went against a kind of sense of rightness within us, um, when we can recognise that, oh, actually, I disagree. I don't believe that this is right. I don't believe that that you are correct. Um, we can start to actually create a world that we do want to live in, that is more inclusive, that is based on compassion and love and mercy. And I think that... It takes um, the collective of us, you know, a critical mass of us, to be um, 
to have our self-belief activated, to, to, to accept ourselves and love ourselves and have good boundaries and trust our own wisdom and our own intuition, that these are the aspects of, um, of a well-informed and active community. And that, I think, collectively, that is how we will um, create a world that is based on the values that most of the people I know really share. And of course, it's it's all messy and human, right? We're all mm-hmm. in our different, in our different, um, we, we all operate at a different pace. But, but I think that for me, my work is very much about helping anyone who is interested to see that self doubt does not have to hold you back from what you want in your life. And when you open up to what self belief, self trust, self acceptance, self worth can bring into your life. Um, a whole other path opens up. And I think that the, those principles are um, available to any of us. And when we collectively um, combine to kind of say, okay, how do we want to do, do this? That's when you actually get the power of community, of making real change. And, um, and I think that there isn't a world I want to live in that does not have an aspect of faith in it. As a, as a principal tenet. Um, I, so I don't believe that everybody has to believe in order for it to be <laughs> a, a thing that matters. Um, but for me, it, 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 I believe that um, we are... We are, I mean, we know from, from science that we are literally made of the same stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like every atom in our bodies came from um, stars that exploded. We are all made of the same base elements. Um, you know, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all those things that actually uh, um, are necessary for life. Um, they were created in this kind of furnace of stars that exploded. And that's what created um, that's what created our Earth. That's what created us. And so there is this kind of irrefutable fact mm-hmm. right, by big brain scientists that we are literally made of stardust. We are made of these same elements. And I think that connection to me has always felt incredibly magical. Um, and, and so I, I, I guess I do agree with what, um, I do agree with what Brene Brown is, is offering, that there is a, a thing that we are all connected through. Um, I'm not sure what that is, and I don't pretend to have the answers, but um, I do feel like when we can lean into that and, you know, even going out in nature, you start to see that there is just this magic everywhere, that that actually opens us up to new possibilities um, in, in so many different aspects of our lives. Yes, I, I think that was so well said. And I, I think we just live in this very special time when science and faith or spirituality are starting to align and not be so opposed to each other. But you're seeing that, you know, as we our our consciousness and our understanding of our world evolve, that there's more there's more alignment there than maybe in the past we gave credit, you know, or, or understood. And with that thinking, I, you know, I think we're moving away from binary thinking and dualistic thinking in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I have a question that's very, 
binary in a sense. Binary. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, do you think women or people who identify as women experience self-doubt differently than men? Um, we, we tend to, um, we, so just to be clear, we all experience self-doubt. It's not a gendered experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to respond slightly differently. So, um, and this is true of anything to do with our survival mechanism, any any kind of threat to us, be it physical or be it um, psychological, like which is where self doubt sort of fits. So there tend to there tends to be kind of four core responses to to anything that is stressful or or a threat to us, um, which I'm sure people will have heard of as um, the fight, flight, freeze, and and now tend and befriend is also a response that is um, considered to be universal. Um, and so the men tend to respond from a kind of fight and flight place so it's a it's a kind of I guess an archetypal action right that they're either fighting the, the fear or they're fleeing from it right they're, they're sort of running away they're, 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 um, they're in flight whereas women tend to experience um, a freeze response or a tend and befriend response and the tend and befriend response has only really been kind of um, researched and studied enough uh, sufficiently for it to be considered a, a core universal experience in the last sort of 30 years. Um, and that's very much where we tend to kind of make sure everyone else is okay, often from from a self-doubt perspective at our own expense. So it's the kind of people-pleasing response, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as um, a sort of proving yourself all the time. So, um, so there is a th- these four different responses that we all can at times choose to um, choose to to access to respond to stress and fear. Um, men on the on the whole tend to to take those kind of more action oriented responses. Um, but that's, that's not universal, that's just a kind of tendency. Um, there's a great researcher who I, um, I read a lot of his work when I was um, in my, um, studying for my dissertation, who has, uh, he's a psychotherapist and he's worked primarily with male in, men in leadership positions, so male leaders, and he found that actually men in academia and medicine and banking and these kind of quite high-risk, high-powered jobs um, actually had um, as much of a tendency to experience self-doubt, imposter syndrome, um, a, a sense of um, you know, kind of quite heightened um, cortisol and adrenaline, all these kind of stress um, hormones, um, they were uh, mar- uh, you know, quite markedly higher um, than the average person. So um, I, th- I think we have to get away from this idea that it is a gendered experience, although the popular media likes to think that. Um, but, of course, it, you know, it, it just does not bear out in the research. So, um, so we do all experience self-doubt, but we do tend to have these slightly different um, tendencies in how we respond to it. Well, that was new for me. I'd never heard of tend and befriend before. So I'm going to do, do a little bit of looking into that because I, I think yeah. I'm just curious about that. So thank you for, for answering that question. So I did have a, a 
closing question for you. And I feel like we've kind of answered that question. So I'm going to throw a different one your way. (laughs) But I get the feeling from talking to you that you can kind of roll with that. So um, it's a question I've started asking people on the podcast because my work is around really living a soul-centered life. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering um, how you would answer that. So what what does it look like to live a soul-centered life? That's such a beautiful question. I wish someone had asked me this when I was much, much younger. (laughs) Would have been useful to even think that that was possible. Um, I I like to think that one, I mean, one of the things that has really impacted me as an adult is um, sobriety. So I stopped drinking um, over eight years ago. Mm. Um, What one of the completely unexpected Um, outcomes of being sober all the time is that I'm really awake and I'm really um, I'm always myself there is the sense of constancy um, within my life and that has enabled me to ensure that I'm always kind of living in alignment with a sense of what matters to me I guess a value-led life um, in that way so I'm I'm conscious all the time of, um, you know, is, the, is this a good choice? Like where, where, why does this matter to me? I'm, I'm very kind of reflective in that way. Um, and, and I guess what that tends to look like is that, you know, I've recognised that I actually, even though I probably have a tendency towards being an extrovert, I really value my own company and quiet time. And so I've created, you know, a kind of morning routine, which most of the time I get to experience, which is to um, to meditate and to write and then to um, walk out our little dog in the park. Before I've had breakfast, I've experienced, you know, a sense of connection to the divine, a connection to myself and writing and reflecting and a connection to nature and taking Bodhi out for his morning walk. Um, and that sort of sets me up for the day. Um, and I quite like a lot of variety in my day, um, but I'm I'm very much I'm very interested in the second half of my life, um, where I sort of feel like I've come to a natural wrapping up of this kind of questing and um, achieving and all of that kind of stuff. I sort of feel like not that that's over, but that there is a new energy that I can feel forming as I sort of you know I'm in my um, mid late 40s now and I can sort of see that that is only going to continue um hopefully for many years uh where I get to um where I get to sort of look at well who do I want to be now and what is that going to look like but really trusting that you know my soul has the answers my Mm -hmm. my soul is going to send out little breadcrumbs for me to follow um and so yeah I, I feel like in my relationships and in my friendships um, in the work that I do, um, there's a lot of um, of that feeling quite soul-led. I do feel like I've managed over the last sort of seven, eight years to to pull something out of, you know, the ashes of grief and loss and um, alcoholism and, and kind of pull together something that feels like um, a very conscious life that I'm so grateful for. Um, and so 
I guess part of the mission for me now is to really sink into that and see what um, you know, what pops up as a result. Mm, that's a fantastic answer. And I want to add that I'm grateful that you've done all that work in your life because I feel like I and people listening to you are going to benefit from from that work that you've done. And it's just also a reminder that, you know, all of these challenges that life throws at us when we when we dive into them and find healing and do that hard work that we really do help to bring healing to the greater world because we are connected. So thank you. So why don't you tell um, our listeners or my listeners today where they can find you and please include Instagram because you're very active on Instagram and so am I. And I love, I love it. I like to see all your stories. And so include where they can find you online and where you hang out. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm on my uh, website is, is sasspepperick.com and um, I have a podcast and, a, and I um, write a blog post a couple of times a month. So um, you can sign up to, to receive that. Um, and all of all of my kind of connections are available there. Um, I'm not really on Facebook very much anymore, but I am, as you say, Sammy, I am on, on Instagram. I do have a bit of a love affair with images and trying to capture something of, of a of a moment. Um, so yeah, you'll find me on Instagram as at Sasspetherick as well. Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on Reframe Your Life today and for my hundredth episode and have a great day. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor. Leave me a comment or a rating on iTunes. Share this episode on your social media feed. And follow me on Instagram at Sandy A. Reynolds. If you're interested in knowing more about my products and services, drop by my website, sandyreynolds.com, and get the latest on how you can live soul-sick. Love.